What connection does the Catholic Church have with the Big Bang Theory? Hmm, okay. And who is Bartholomew Richard Fitzgerald Smythe? Wow, that's quite a name. It's quite a name. Better than Bob Smith. He's quite a guy. Okay, well, <laughs> answer those and other questions in this half hour of The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and get some perspective on life. Well, Marcia, did you know that the Catholic Church has a connection with the Big Bang Theory? Oh, let's see. Well, what is it? <laughs> what, what is it? Um, well, no. I don't okay. know. <laughs> the Big Bang Theory came out of a Catholic university. In fact, it was a Catholic priest who came up with the Big Bang Theory. Uh-huh. He was Georges Lemaitre, a professor of physics and astronomy at Leuven, Belgium's Catholic University. And he published his hypothesis of the primeval atom, is what it was called, in the science journal Nature in 1931. Now, a Catholic priest may have come up with the theory, but guess what? It was an atheist who named it. Oh, yeah? yeah? You know, you might oh, think of yeah. the Big Bang Theory as something that sounds almost atheistic. Some Christians don't believe that, that it happened that way. But that was a Catholic priest who came up with it, who yeah. happened to be a scientist. Yeah. Well, Fred Hoyle was an astronomer who was an atheist. He coined the phrase Big Bang as a way to mock La Maitre's theory of the origin of the universe. Oh, really? Yeah, so well, it was it's a, a great ne- term. negative connotation. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. During a 1949 radio interview, Hoyle rejected the implication that the start of the universe required a causal agent, God. I didn't know the Big Bang Theory was a Catholic priest's idea. Not the TV show. We're not talking the TV show now. (laughs) We're talking the theory. And Sheldon, who is an atheist. Not Sheldon Cooper, no. Okay, Bob, who is Bartholomew Richard Fitzgerald Smythe? He is my great uncle on my, I don't know. No, you know this guy. I do? Yeah. Bartholomew Richard Fitzgerald Smythe. It's Mr. Peanut. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Peanut actually has a name? Yes. Oh, that's funny. That's the Peanut's given name, and it explains why he's so pretentious with a top hat, monocle, and spats. It sure does. Yes. Mr. Peanut got his personal start in 1916 when a Virginia schoolboy, I love this, Antonio Gentile, won a design contest with an anthropomorphic peanut drawings. So it made something that was inanimate look like a human being. Right, Yeah. right. That planter's nuts put out there a contest. And the this dapper legume didn't get a voice until 2010. Oh, really? And he was, <laughs> guess who was his voice? Robert Downey Jr. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> but in a shocking surprise, and I did not know this, Planners killed him off for the Super Bowl in 2020, and oh. he's been replaced with Peanut Jr., a hip kid nut in a baseball cap. Oh, for God's sake. <laughs> I guess top hats and monocles have been... He was too old school. Culture canceled, Wow, <laughs> wow. Canceled the peanut man. That's pretty, pretty really? bad, How isn't it? How did I not notice? Did you notice? No, well, uh-huh. I don't know. Okay, Marcia, what famous beer festival was created by brewers to get rid of spring beer? Beer made in the spring. 
Uh, well, it wasn't Oktoberfest. It was Oktoberfest. <laughs> well, yes. How did that? Oh, because they had spring beer left over and sold it. It was originally held to finish up what was left of Marzen or March beer. Be that darn. was the original idea. To help the beer last through the summer, they added extra alcohol to the brew, and the brew was stored in caves. So it has a different flavor. <laughs> Speaking yeah. of beer, I got one more question. Uh-huh. What word did those caves? that stored the beer in Germany, yeah. give birth to. What word that, uh, that's used in, in brewing, brewing means caves. Yeah, let me think, let me think. Not It's the beer. German word for storage. Oh, really? Uh, Eidenbachen. No, <laughs> lager. Oh, lager. Lager means okay. storage. I got a lot of my questions today from a website called Interesting Facts okay. that, that I found fascinating. Like... This famous icon, Bob, has a wife named Poppy and two kids named Popper and Bun Bun. <laughs> is this a brand? Some, some kind of a... Who is he? Okay, yes, so it it's is. some kind of icon. Is it Popper and Bun Bun? <laughs> I'm thinking of Poppin' Fresh Pies or something like that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Who, who is it? Well... The Poppin' Fresh Boy. It's the Pillsbury Doughboy. Oh, no. <laughs> He's got relatives. He yes, who knew? He was born from the imagination of a Chicago copywriter in 1965. And this original character was Claymation. Oh. But within three years, Doughboy had an 87% recognition factor <laughs> among shoppers. So obviously the Doughboy... Had some gravitas. They didn't right? kill him off. No, they did. Like the peanut people killed off That's, Mr. Peanut. He grew in popularity over the years and had a family when a popular vinyl doll series was released. What's his family's name again? His what? wife is Popper and and two kids named Bun Bun. And you could buy the, <laughs> the whole family in vinyl. Popper Dolls. and Bun Bun. Okay. <laughs> well, we're handling serious things yes, here today. it's a nice change of pace. Okay. Since you were talking about food... I've got a couple of food questions for okay. you. What food is blamed for helping cause the Salem witch trials? Say again. What, what? food uh-huh. is blamed for helping cause the Salem oh, witch trials? Oh, 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 it was something. Did the ladies... Uh, the ladies had symptoms. They had hallucinations. Yes, they had, yeah, I was going to say, did they eat poppies or something? They uh, ate something. And it gave, made them act a little weird, and so they Oh, they acted they weird. Them. They had hallucinations, yeah. incomprehensible yeah. speech, Some kind of, unusual skin sensations, and yeah. they were all likely caused by rye. ergot poisoning from infected rye bread. Rye bread? Rye bread, your favorite, <laughs> which explains so many things that happen around this house. <laughs> Ergot is a fungus that infects cereal grasses like wheat and rye. I am itching. And it also contains some pretty potent chemicals, including lysergic acid, a substance that years later was used to produce LSD. Jeez. So that's why those ladies got so crazy. Didn't any guys get crazy? Didn't they eat rye bread? There were not just women. All right, back to the arcane. What event precipitated the creation of the Geico Gecko? The Geico Gecko. What event? Uh-huh. Was it a world event? No, it was more like the United States, 1998. 1998? I don't know. What would it be? And you're part of this group. Oh, dear. Yes. The gecko was born during the Screen Actors Guild strike oh. in 1999, which <laughs> prevented the hiring of live actors. And the first campaign all centered around educating the public on the mispronouncing or misspelling of the company. 
everybody said gecko insurance, gecko insurance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so because he was a gecko, right? Yeah. So they 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 cleared that up with a gecko gecko. It's not gecko. It's gecko. <laughs> And here's an interesting fact. Initially, he had a posh British voice of Fraser's Kelsey Grammer. He did the voice. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. But eventually, they wanted to make the gecko more friendly with a more casual Cockney accent, like, you know, the friendly lizard next door. So now, Of course, yes. <laughs> and that's what he's got today. All lizards I've ever seen were Cockneys, <laughs> the ones that spoke to me anyway. <laughs> the friendly lizard oh, next door. Oh, dear. So uh, Kelsey Grammer was the original voice yeah. of the Geico Gecko. Yeah. I did I'd not I'd like know to hear that. that. Yeah. Very different approach, I'm uh-huh. sure. Maybe more dramatic. Yeah. (laughs) Remember the 2004 Indian Ocean earthquake and that deadly tsunami? Yes. The huge wave and overpowered all those islands and so forth. How powerful was it compared to the first atomic bomb on Hiroshima? Oh, really? Yeah. Was it twice as strong? It was more than that. Really? How much? 550 million times more energy than the Hiroshima atomic bomb. Are you kidding me? 550 million times more energy than the first atomic bomb. They said that's enough energy to power the United States for 370 years. And the explosion from the earthquake was so powerful, it altered the Earth's rotation, shortening the length of the day by 2.6 microseconds. Oh, I noticed it. I noticed it. That's from the book, Are You Kidding Me? I knew I was uh, getting less sleep after that event. Harry Bright and Jacob Answer. Jeez. Okay. Okay, Bob, let's get back to serious stuff. Oh, I'm sorry. In 1954, a young boy who liked to draw smiley faces on frosty windows. What famous character did his dad create from that? Oh, that had to be the uh, Kool-Aid All right, face. one for the bobble. Okay, so that was a kid did that on... Well, yeah, he, he would do it in frosty windows, and his dad thought it was kind of cute, and he created the... Happy-go-lucky Kool-Aid pitcher man. (laughs) What was his dad, a a graphic designer for an ad agency? Yeah, yeah. And 20 years later, he was given arms and legs, and he made his first TV commercial. And he's still popular, still around. He's on all the packages of Kool-Aid, and they even have pictures with his cute little face on it. I'll be darned. So a kid came up with that. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yes, it is. Well, a kid didn't come up with this. Okay. What mood-stabilizing drug was once in the recipe for the soft drink 7-Up? Oh, well, I know it was uh, Coke had cocaine in it. I don't know. Lithium. Lithium. (laughs) (laughs) The original recipe for the soft drink 7-Up contained lithium citrate, a mood-stabilizing drug. Today, it's used for bipolar disorder, something that used to be called manic depression. Speaking of depression, 7-Up was launched two weeks before the stock market crashed in 1929. It's it's good. (laughs) Let's face it. You got a couple of world wars. You got the depression. They needed some uh, lithium back then. (laughs) Don't you think? Now, just everybody just goes to therapists now. But back then. Let's have some soda pop, shall Let's we? have some 7-Up. <laughs> oh, the stock market crash. Let's have a 7-Up. Oh, my. Well, it, it helped, apparently. Oh, it really calms you down. Who knew? All right, Bobby, which of these things were invented by ancient Egyptians? All right. Was it toothpaste, scissors, prosthetics, solar calendar, or marshmallows? I'll say uh, solar calendar is not the one they did. But but they came up with everything else, including marshmallows. (laughs) 
Marshmallows, really? <laughs> they the Egyptians, they're roasting weenies and marshmallows at the pyramids? Hey, you got to kill time when you're not carrying 10-ton bricks on your back. Jeez. Oh, actually, it was all of those things. So They you, invented all those things? Yes, they did. Wow. But out of all of them, I guess the thing that amazed me the most was the prosthetics. Scientists found the prosthetic toe of a woman who lived from about 950 to 710 B.C., the toe was made of part leather and part wood, and it was thought to be tied onto her foot or her sandal with a string, which would have improved her ability to walk properly, her well, big toe. That's what a toe would do, yes. Yeah. But they found an actual big toe prosthetic. Yeah, yeah. In Egypt, ancient yeah. Egypt. Ancient, ancient. Wow. 950 to 710 BC. I thought you were going to put the iPhone in that list. I was going to say, I think the iPhone, <laughs> the iPhone they did not invent. But yeah, the toothpaste, marshmallows. Toothpaste too, huh? Yeah. Scissors. So they, they invented something that was a paste with to brush your teeth instead yes. of using yes. urine like the Romans did. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my. Yeah, that was swell. Okay. Okay, Marcia, we've recently did uh, word origins and questions and phrases, so I've uh-huh. uh, got a couple more here for you. Push the envelope. Where does that come from? Well, I... Mm, push the, push the push envelope. Push the envelope. Well, early mailmen used to take the mail out of the mailbox, and if they didn't want to carry the heavy load, they, they just would push it to the back of the pushed, box. Uh, you have such great and ideas. It was put, and putting your job on the line because you weren't delivering that day. No, that comes from the aeronautic industry. A flight envelope is a term. Oh, that's right. <laughs> a flight envelope is the term meaning the boundary or limit of performance for a flight vehicle. And the envelope can be described in terms of mathematical curves based on things like speed and thrust and atmosphere. You push the envelope as far as you can to discover what the limits are. And Tom Wolfe and the right Right stuff stuff, brought that expression into wider use. That's where I learned about what it meant in the right stuff. Time for a break now. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marcia Smith, and we come back with Marcia's question on movies. Okay, what famous movie evolved from a short story called The Greatest Gift that was sent out with Christmas cards? I know the answer to this one. You do? Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life. Yes. A fellow named Philip Van Doren Stern had an idea while shaving about a man on the verge of suicide on Christmas. And he's saved by a guardian angel. In 1943, he'd written up the idea into a little short story and sent it out to 200 of his friends in his cards. And a draft of the story eventually fell into the hands of an agent at RKO Studios. Okay. Who gave the guy $10,000 for it. For, as the idea? Yeah. Wow. That was a lot more money back in the 40s oh, no than it kidding. is today. But still, That's I, right. and it's nothing, found money. Yeah. And nothing happened with it for three years until 1946 when Frank Capra got hold of it and turned it into the wonderful film, It's a Wonderful Life. And what was the name of the story again? The short story was called The Greatest Gift. The Greatest Gift. Yeah. How did one president's refusal lead to an unelected man becoming president? Arcane facts from American history, Marcia. <laughs> I bring them to you. Oh, yes. It's our pillow talk, isn't it, Bob? I'll repeat it again, Marcia. Thank Marcia. you. Thank you. And this goes back to the 19th century. Okay, so it uh-huh. goes back to about 1849. Okay. How did one president's refusal lead to an unelected man becoming president for a day? For a day? That's the clue. I don't know anybody who was just a day. 
Well, the president who refused was Zachary Taylor. Uh-huh. He was the hero of the Mexican-American War in the 1840s. And he was actually the president-elect in the spring of 1849. The election of 1848 had come and gone. He was getting ready to take office. And he was set to be sworn in on Inauguration Day, which back then was March 4th. But March 4th landed on a Sunday in 1849, and Zachary Taylor refused to be sworn in on a Sunday. Oh, what? Religious purposes. Okay. That meant that David Rice Atchison, president pro tem of the Senate, legally became president for a 24-hour period until Taylor was sworn in the next day. Oh, my gosh. So it was uh, legally binding. They had to do it on that day. They had to do it on that day, and he refused. So then the person who was next in line at the time was the president pro tem of the Senate. And he was never really sworn yeah. in. They just, okay, we'll push it well, off to the next day. That's a little stupid, don't you think? But that's I mean, how a president's refusal led to an unelected man yeah, being uh, yeah. named president. Now, what does the president pro tem of the Senate, what does that title mean? The majority leader? No. I don't know. It's the person who temporarily presides over the Senate when the vice president can't lead. Pro tempore is a Latin term meaning for the time being. So the Senate always elects one of its members to serve in that position just in case. Just in case. Temporary. Temporary officer. Uh Just in case. Yeah. That shows you a big stubborn streak with that uh, president, don't you think? Probably. Um, I mean, that just didn't bode well. I'm not going to Yeah, not today and Sunday. Well, get over (laughs) yourself. We elected you, damn it. What right? if we have an emergency on a yeah, Sunday? Are yeah, you going to not very do something selfish. about it? Yeah, I think so. Oh, I'll tell him. Oh, he's dead. <laughs> going back to It's a Wonderful Life, the movie also changed the way cinematic snowflakes were made forever. Oh, did it? Really? <laughs> it did. In the 40s, most film sets used cornflakes for snow scenes. Cornflakes? But Capra got cranky because of all the noise and crunching sounds that cornflakes were making because <laughs> he had a hell of a lot of... Uh, a lot of snow, snow scenes, That's right? true, yeah. So the question is, what did he replace it with? What did he replace the snow mm-hmm. with? Mm-hmm. Well, I know in the silent days, they actually used asbestos, that white stuff that was used in insulation and it's horrible for your lungs. I've seen pictures in old movie books of huge mountains of asbestos. They would blow into the cowboys' faces and oh, all this. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh. Not knowing this is poisonous stuff oh, that would ruin your God. lungs. Yeah. Uh, so I don't think they did that in the 40s. No. What was it? It was soap flakes. Oh, Lux soap. Lux soap flakes. Yeah. And today they still use that along with fire extinguisher foam. Oh, no kidding. Uh, and shredded paper, too, is another thing they okay. use. Shredded. So all, all three of those things are used. Okay, Marcia, here's another term. Where did it come from? Acid test. Acid test. It passed the acid test. Well, if it doesn't dissolve, it passed the acid test. Okay, so what would that be? Almost anything that doesn't dissolve. Where did this come from, Marsha? Where did this term come from? Well, passed the acid. The acid test. I don't know. It was during the gold rush. Oh, that's proved if it was gold or not. Most acids dissolve other metals more quickly than gold. So using acid on a metallic substance became a way for gold prospectors to see if what they had contained gold. If it passed the acid test, it didn't dissolve. It was gold, Uh, the real thing. I'll be darned. I always thought they bit into it. If it was soft, it was gold. If gold is soft, gold. but it could yeah. have been other things, too. You can bite my ring, no, that's and it enough. doesn't get... Okay. <laughs> it's not... Okay. As you know, Bob, there are a whole bunch of traditions that go down with most weddings, 
like uh, something new, something blue, or you'd something old, use... something new, something borrowed, something blue. Isn't that it? Oh, you got it down. Yeah, I've been to weddings, <laughs> many weddings. We didn't have one, but okay, all oh, right. That's always been a sore spot. <laughs> no, we, we eloped. Ah, and you thought it was romantic at it, the time. It was great. You just Still. didn't get uh, you know the towels and the wine glasses it's, that you wanted. Well, I did get the wine glasses eventually. Okay, more than we could ever. All use. right, here but, we go. Uh, but one tradition I find interesting is the fading tradition of asking those in attendance during the wedding ceremony if anyone present objects to the marriage. Oh, yes. Uh Speak now or forever hold your peace. Mm -hmm. Where does that custom come from? Speak now or forever hold your peace. Well, oh, was it when brides were stolen and taken somewhere and somebody had to speak up? If they spoke up, it's like, that that bride is not yours? I think that's a side issue, absolutely. I think that's part of it. But it was started during the Middle Ages to prevent bigamy, oddly enough. Oh, no kidding. During those great old days, (laughs) Christian churches required upcoming weddings to be announced three Sundays in a row. And it allowed time for the news to spread. And if the bride or groom were already married to someone else, word would eventually get back to the priest or somebody would show up at the wedding (laughs) and the priest would ask one more time if anyone objected to make sure during the ceremony that they could proceed with the marriage. Hey, Harry Connor's getting married again. What do you mean he's getting (laughs) married? He's married to me. Jeez. That's funny, isn't it? Yeah, and there were brides whisk off, but they they didn't usually get married in uh, churches, Hmm. the ones that were stolen. The best man originally, I think, protected the bride. Wasn't that the idea? Yeah. 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 Okay, you had that thing about uh, uh, what logo was designed by a child, and that was the uh, Kool-Aid face, Kool-Aid man, pitcher man. What state's flag was designed by a teenager more than 90 years ago? What state's flag was designed by a teenager? So I will say, I'll say... Let me give you a hint. Oh, thank you. There are 50 choices. The so state was a territory it. at the time. Okay. And it was thought that it would be a great idea to give a contest to get this this rolling towards statehood. Uh-huh. And it was in your lifetime, Marcia. Really? Yes. Oh, so it's just 40 years old. Two states were <laughs> added during your lifetime, oh, Marcia. Oh, yes, dear. Alaska and, and Hawaii. Okay, which state was it, Marcia? That got... We got to well, get to the went. answer here. All right, Alaska. That's right. All right. We finally Thank got there. <laughs> 1926, Alaska was still a territory, not a state, but the governor, George Parks, wanted to change that, and he thought that having a state flag was a good first step. So in 1927, he introduced a flag-making contest to Alaskan children in grades 7 through 12, and the winner of the contest, Benny Benson. Benny Benson. Benny Benson was a 13-year-old orphan with Swedish, Russian, and Alut roots. His design featured the Big Dipper, symbolizing strength, and the North Star, symbolizing Alaska's future. That's nice. Yeah. They still use it today. I'll have to look that one up to see what it looks like. That's the only state, I think, where the state flag was designed by a teenager. And a good state flag at that. Well, teenagers, a lot of good artists in teen world. Okay, Bob, how many bones does the adult human body have? How many bones? Okay, okay, hold on. Uh, Let's see. Gee, I think of the hand. The hand alone has so many in the feet. So I guess it's got to be 100, 150 bones. 206. 206. In an adult human. And how many in a baby? 
Two hundred six. Two hundred seventy. What? Yeah, they have more. They have more because as they grow, some of their bones fuse, so they have fewer bones when they're adults. Okay. Compare that to say dogs. They have three hundred and twenty bones, and more if they have long tails. So here's a question for you, Bob. Okay. How many bones does a shark have in its skeleton? I'll, I'll tell you, it's a nice round number, something between zero and a thousand. Whoa. So a shark has that many bones? So well, it's more bones than a human being, more bones than I a, didn't say that. I said. Yeah, but it is, isn't it? I'm not Why saying. would you ask? I, you'll find out. There are 659 bones in a shark. That sounds like a Marsha answer. Wrong. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh, it's zero. What? There are no bones. Unlike most fish, you know, the, when you eat fish, sometimes you get those little yeah, bones, bones in your... Right. Yeah, Yeah, but uh, the shark skeleton is made up of all cartilage. Oh. And they have absolutely no bones. I didn't know that. Yeah, so... So I guess next time I'm eating shark, I won't worry about the bones sticking my... <laughs> that's right. Wait a minute. You don't, don't have to pick your teeth afterwards. I don't eat shark. Okay. <laughs> All right, Marcia, what state makes it illegal to push a moose out of a moving plane? Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> See, some states are so cruel. No, uh, they make it, it illegal. It, well, it should be. It should be. Nobody should push no, a moose. No, no, that should be on the books on every state. Especially so. in there in what state? Especially if you're in Montana. No, uh, Alaska. 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 They they have some weird laws dealing with moose. You got got attached to an Alaska website, didn't you? (laughs) It it has many regulations centering around moose, apparently. I didn't know that. And uh, three weird laws dealing with moose. It's considered an offense to feed alcohol to a moose. Not supposed to get those moose drunk. (laughs) It's illegal to whisper in somebody's ear while they're moose hunting. Really? Yes. Oh, man, and I you love get it. If you're moose hunting, you better okay. not whisper in somebody's <laughs> ear. You could be arrested. Okay. And Alaska has a law stating it's illegal to push a moose out of a moving plane. Well, that is a good one to know. You know, it's like driving drunk. It's just something you don't do. But most laws come from a need, and there is no need for that law in our state, apparently. Okay, and then this is a uh, invention question, okay? Okay. What was the most successful product of Thomas Edison's later career? later career. Was it the phonograph? No, no. That, that was a very successful product, and it was successful years after he died, was of it, course. Was it a hearing aid? No, and it wasn't the light bulb. See, the phonograph and the electric light bulb, a lot of those inventions came early in his career, Yeah. 1870s. This is 1910. Okay, tell me. Edison invented the alkaline battery. Oh. Do you know what that was originally designed for? No. Electric cars. Uh, the uh, batteries in electric cars, the earlier ones, were made out of lead. They were very heavy, and they often leaked and corroded the automobile body. So Edison saw that as a need, and he worked for like 10 years to come up with a different kind of battery. But by the time it was invented, by the time it was ready, the model T had taken off, and inexpensive internal combustion engines replaced electric cars. So um, he found, uh, he marketed it to industry. So it was used, you know, we use it for flashlights today, mm-hmm. for, you know, electric. Yeah, and they definitely last longer. So Duracell, Energizer, those are all alkaline batteries, and Thomas Edison invented that. We don't think of him inventing that technology because it's always hidden in other things, but... That's the way he, in many ways, that he may have touched our lives more with those than with the electric light and some other things. I don't. I would argue that. What? I can't see you. (laughs) Oh, the the light's off. All right. Thank you. And speaking of another great mind, I'm going to finish up with a quote from Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein. And his quote on war, 
Okay. Which is something a lot of people are thinking about right now in this scary time. He said, I know not with what weapons World War III will be fought, but World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones. Oh, wow. That's pretty uh, dark. Yeah, pretty dramatic and accurate, I think. Wow. Okay. We want to remind you, if you'd like to submit a question to us for me to, you know, kind of torture Marsha with or <laughs> her to torture me with, That's you can do that by going to our website, theofframp.show, and scrolling all the way down to Contact Us and leave your information there. Well, that's it for today. We hope you've enjoyed the program. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. Join us again next time for The The Off-Ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.